0: Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet,
1: History has a way of producing the right people for the right moment. You see, there are these moments in history that are just pregnant with opportunity where where something has to be done by somebody to move humanity in a different direction. Well, back in the 1950s and 60s in America, uh, it was that kind of a moment. Uh, you may remember, or you may remember from history, that there was this... Uh, segregation that was alive and well in America. Segregation that basically said we were equal but separate. The races were, were separate but equal, equal but separate. But everybody knew that this simply wouldn't work for long. Everybody knew that this was simply the wrong approach to life. And history produced one man at this moment. A man named Martin Luther King Jr., who who God used to literally change the world. It was a moment where he saw that that something needed to be done and he decided to to move into that, that he decided to do something about it. I remember growing up and seeing images of segregation, maybe in the school books or maybe on television or in movies even recently. And, And I remember seeing those images of of people riding a bus and, and black people being told that they have to ride in the back of the bus and there was something in me that just, when, I, when you see that your, your stomach sinks you just feel sick to yourself and, or, or you remember seeing those drinking fountains that would say colored people only or whites only and, and, and there was a part of you that when you see that kind of stuff you just know it's injustice you know it's wrong and somebody has to do something about it well, this man Uh, This is a likeness of Martin Luther King Jr. He decided that he was going to do something about it. And what makes Martin Luther King Jr. so unique, what makes his name go down in history, is that he did it the right way. What's interesting to note is that there are all kinds of people in the history books that tried to end this idea of segregation, to end this idea that one race was over another race. And and a lot of these men and women, they rose up with arms. They rose up in violent manners. and, and, And those names just slip into history and nobody remembers them. But Martin Luther King Jr., he did it a different way. He used wisdom, he used honor in order to change an entire nation and we remember his name today. Well, this brings us to the idea of the book of Ecclesiastes. In this book, we have covered a a lot of themes because this book covers a lot of themes about life. King Solomon in these ancient words, he, he expresses wisdom for living life. He gives wisdom for doing life better and he's talking about all the things that he's learned and so he's talked about all of these different major issues and uh, but there's a couple issues that we haven't hit on yet we're not going to cover every moment of this book uh, for the rest of this book but we are going to talk about a few of the major issues that he brings up and one of the issues is how we relate to authority uh, yeah how we relate even to government now uh, if anybody knows me I um, I kind of have some trouble spots with this, right? And this is a hard subject for me personally to deal with because I can just admit it. I hate to be told what to do. I hate the fact that somebody can give me a ticket. It really bothers me that in the land of the free, we're not so free all the time. But Solomon says that somehow, in some way, we got to figure out how to relate to the government, to those in authority over us. and so. It becomes interesting because he begins to rattle off some pretty deep thoughts about how you and I and why you and I should relate to authority and how we should do this. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the eighth chapter, he begins by saying these words. Obey the king since you vowed to God that you would. Don't try to avoid doing your duty, and don't stand with those who plot evil. For the king can do whatever he wants. His command is backed by great power. No one can resist or question it. Those who obey him will not be punished. And those who are wise will find a time And a way to do what is right, for there is a time and a way for everything, even when a person is in trouble. So let me just give you a couple thoughts that jump out to me from this passage of Scripture in dealing with authority. The first thing is that we need to figure out how to deal with authority rightly because it honors God. The way that we deal with authority is bigger than just obeying the law. It is a way to honor God by our actions. You see, I think a lot of times we forget that ultimately God put authorities in our life all the way through. And Solomon reminds us at the very opening statement that this is a relationship not only between you and the government or you and whoever's in charge of you, but it's between you and God, and here's the second thing uh, I think Solomon just says plainly to us is that you better figure out how to do this because it won't go well for you if you don't. Because governments and those in authority often have the power behind them that, that could alter your life in a pretty big way. Solomon says it like this that the king's word carries a lot of weight. And again, have you ever got a speeding ticket? It's like you're not gonna speed. There's no getting around it, you can't fight it. There's an old saying that says you can't fight City Hall. Believe me, I've tried, I know. Uh, But it's true, Solomon says that ultimately, if you do wrong by society, that you will pay the price for that. And so he urges us, because of our relationship with God, to figure out how to rightly relate to government because ultimately government has this authority, this weight, behind them. Now he says something also very interesting though. I think he understands that many of us often feel this righteous indignation toward what's going on in our world. We see injustices and we want to change them. We want to do something about it. That's the whole idea of Martin Luther King Jr., that he saw a broken world and he says, I'm going to do something about it. But Solomon says this interesting phrase. He says "He says that we need to be careful not to stand with those who do evil in our world. Another translation says, be careful not to join the wrong cause. Uh, I don't know about you, but when you're when you're younger, you, you see this all the time, right? You, you see when, when you're younger that you you do things out of haste, you do things out of passion, you do things just because in that moment, you, you think it's the right thing to do. But at the end of the day, a lot of times when we're younger especially, we don't often think things through. We don't often figure out where it's going to end. And so, uh, Uh, This is kind of what's going on, I think, right now in our nation. It's really unbelievable. You got this whole Black Lives Matter thing. You got all these uh, police officer assassinations. It's crazy what's going on. And there's a lot of complexities to these issues. I get all that. But at the end of the day, there are some causes that are wrong. It's always wrong to kill a police officer. It's always wrong to kill anybody. It's always wrong to do evil in order to accomplish something good. And this really leaves us to uh, our final thought from this little passage where he says there is a time and there is a place... And there is a way to make a change. That sometimes stuff has to be changed. But again, you never do evil in order to do good. That there is a right way and a wrong way to bring about change. Now, if you were to back this up into our everyday sort of a life, you think about even where you work. If you don't like the way something's going on, uh, if you don't like the way a company's moving or the way you're being treated, it's probably not the best idea to throw a hissy fit in the middle of the office. It's probably not the best idea to walk into the boss's office and ping on his desk and demand something to change. It just is probably not the best way to do that. There's probably better ways. And Solomon says, there's a way to do things and you better figure out the wise way to approach it. Even think about your family. You know, if you're a younger person and you're living at home with your folks, um, he's saying you don't just march up to mom and dad and say, mom, dad, you don't know what the hot hay you're doing. You don't know what's going on. I know the real world. They're going to look at you and go, what are you talking about, kid? You see, Solomon is reminding us that there is a right way to relate to authority. There's a right way to change some things. Now here's what's odd. The very next section, Solomon seems to change topics altogether. He seems to change direction of his his conversation completely, but but it's not. It's all tied together because what he says next is that, that no matter who you are, he reminds us that death is going to come our way. And he begins to talk about this idea that even wicked people who plot and scheme and they're part of all these causes and they're trying to get around authority, that ultimately they die as well. And so when you look at this whole passage together, what I find to be very interesting is Solomon, again, is trying to tie into our relationship to authority. No matter what kind of authority in our life has to do with our relationship to God. I, I find it really interesting, even in the Ten Commandments, that the the middle commandment, number five, is, is children, honor your father and your mother. For some reason, in the dead middle of it all, he drops in this command that deals with our relationship to earthly authority honoring our parents and you think about this idea of honoring our parents. Why uh, why do we obey our parents? Why do we obey anybody for any reason at all? You think about this, like with me and my parenting, with my kids, the reason as a parent I'm trying so hard to teach my children this idea of obedience is because it directly relates to their ability to to obey God himself. You see, this idea of obedience, it shows what you believe. Uh, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, there's this interesting little phrase that says, that God desires our obedience, not our sacrifice. He wants us to run after him. He wants us to obey him. And, and when we obey people in authority over us, our parents, our, our the government, our, our employers, when we, when we somehow figure out how to honor them, it really is showing what we believe about God. That's what I'm trying to teach my children. Another reason I try so hard to teach my children about obedience is because of love. You see, whenever we obey, it shows love. It shows who we love. Jesus said it like this in the book of John, that that those of us who would be his followers, we will demonstrate our love for him by our obedience to his word, that we will be willing to follow his leadership. That's what obedience does. It demonstrates Who we love. And and you think about our kids, like we want our kids to obey us not because we're bigger than them, not because we can grab onto them and make them do something, but it's because we want them to love us. And we know when they obey us, it shows that our relationship is strong. And ultimately, Solomon again is referring to our relationship to God. Our relationship to authority points directly to our relationship with God. And lastly, I think this idea of obedience, it demonstrates a witness to the world. I want you to think so strongly about this, that the way that we behave in our families, the way that we submit to our husbands or to our wives, the way that we obey our employers and honor them with our, our excellent work, the way that we honor our civil government around us, the way that we we treat those around us, it gives a, a witness, it demonstrates that, that our faith is real, that we're different than the world. Absolutely. Listen, absolutely, there are things that we want to change in, in different areas of our life, from the government down to our little, our little families. But the way that we go about it needs to reflect a greater love, a greater obedience, a greater relationship to authority. And that would be our relationship to God. So this idea of obedience, it it, it shows what we believe, and it, and it shows love. But it does one more thing: it demonstrates a witness to the world. It tells the world that we're different. So whether it's in your own little family, there's something you want to change there, or it could be in the government or anything in between. Maybe your workplace, how you relate to authority, it's a demonstration. of of your faith to the world. It's a witness that you're different. We don't pick up stones and throw them at people. We don't, uh, you know, shoot people when we're upset with them, that we go about it different, that we take the Martin Luther King Jr. type of approach, that we're different than this world. You see, this idea of relating to authority is in direct relationship to how we relate to the authority of God in our lives and so this book of Ecclesiastes it has a lot of wisdom for us it it changes our perspective on a whole lot of things and but there's a couple other major themes left in this book and we're going to handle one more right now live from the stage we're going to talk about how as Christians how as people of faith we relate to this thing called work so many of us think that work is a dirty four-letter word but it's not Alright, alright, now you ready to get right to it? We're going
2: to get right to it here because what does Ecclesiastes say about how we do our work? Solomon's main thought on work in the book of Ecclesiastes is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, up on the screen, here it is. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. And so what is Solomon saying? He's saying that the way we do our work in this world matters. And he's saying there's a sense of urgency to the work that we do in this world because life is short. There is work that needs to be done on this side of the grave that cannot be done on that side of the grave. In other words, and this is the big idea of everything we're going to say about work today from Ecclesiastes, it's basically this. Life is short, work hard, and make it count. Life is short, work hard, and make it count. God cares about our work. And a lot of people, they're, they're not quite aware of this, how much God really does care about our work and how we do it. See, here's the thing. God created us in his own image. And one of the first things that we're told about God in the Bible, and this is is theology for a minute, who is God? One of the very first things we're told about God in the Bible is that God is a productive worker. This is who he is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the Bible says, and we all know it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is a productive worker. The whole rest of the first chapter and into the second chapter of Genesis is all about God's productive work in creation, creating the heavens and the earth, and it culminates in the creation of mankind, male and female, in the image of God. And when you stop for a minute, you try to figure out, okay, what does it mean to be a human being, right? Created in the image of God. What what does it mean to be in God's image? Well, I think one of the most important things it means to be created in the image of God is this, that God created us to be productive workers, just like he is. In fact, if you were going to try to figure out what it means to be in the image of God just based on the first two chapters of the Bible, I think this is the main thing you'd come up with. What it means to be in the image of God is to be created to do productive work. Productive and creative work. Genesis 1.26 says, God created mankind in his image so that they would rule over and subdue the earth. There's work for us to do. And then it says in Genesis 2.15, it says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and take care of it. This is fundamental to what it means to be a human being. To be created in the image of God. So this idea of work is a big deal to God. He's a productive worker. He created us in his image to be productive workers ourselves. Therefore, Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. This is God's will for us. Life is short. Work hard and make it count. People who work hard reflect the image of God. So how well are we doing, right? This is a question for all of us to kind of ask about ourselves. How are we doing it reflecting God's image? How hard are we working in life? We'll get at that a little bit in a minute, but have you ever met someone who had incredible potential in life? Think about this for a minute, maybe some people that you know. Someone that had incredible potential in life but didn't live up to it because they wouldn't work hard. You ever know any, some, somebody like this? Now, I'm a huge baseball fan. Any baseball fans in the room? I'm a huge baseball fan. It has been a long time since the Tigers won the World Series. Hey, a long time. Anybody remember the last time? 1984. I was 13. I'm way older than 13 today. It's been so long. And so one of the main reasons, you know, the Tigers have been pretty good over the past few years. But what's been their Achilles heel? Everybody who's a Tigers fan will know. The bullpen. The relief pitching has been terrible. I can't tell you how many times the relief pitchers have blown the lead in the last two innings of the game in recent years. Right? I mean, it's just terrible. It's terrible. Now, but there was one guy, there was one guy who was up and coming, right? This young guy coming up through the minors, he looked amazing. Guy had a hundred mile an hour fastball. He looked like he was going to be the guy, he was going to be the answer to all of this. So much potential. 24 years old, 100-mile-an-hour fastball. 2013, this guy looked like the next big thing. Fast forward 2015. Last September, in the heat of the season, right, they send the guy home, literally sent him home. They didn't send him to the minors. They sent him home. I mean, who, who gets sent home? from Major League Baseball. I've never heard this before. Like You get sent home from school, right? You don't get sent home from Major League Baseball. They literally sent him home. If you look up in the paper, Brad Osmus, the manager of the Tigers, uh, literally said this. This was his explanation for why Bruce Rondon got sent home. Here's what he says. Bruce Rondon, because of his effort level, has been sent home. Ouch. Bruce Rondon, so far, is an example of wasted potential because he refuses to work hard. Now listen, when people don't work hard, it's a tragedy. Not just because it keeps the Tigers from winning the World Series. But when people don't work hard, it's a tragedy because it literally tarnishes the image of God in humanity. We were made for more than that. We were made to, to live up to this God given potential inside of us, to exert ourselves, to work hard, to become all that God's called us to be in life. But we've all known people like this, haven't we? I mean, anybody been out of high school 10 years or more? Is that right? That you're raising your hand? I, I was just thinking the other day, how long's it been now? 27 years I've been out of high school. That's kind of crazy for me to even think of. But if you've been out of high school more than 10 years, and you go back to a reunion, isn't it crazy going to a high school reunion and you see these people that you went to high school with and some of them, they just seem to have it all together in high school, right? They were the, the, the ones that seemed to be most likely to succeed. They were the popular ones, the seemingly so successful ones. And you go back to your 10-year reunion it's just amazing sometimes to see where these people end up. Anybody else feel that way when they went to their 10-year reunion? It's kind of crazy, right? They seem to have it all together, but they didn't live up to their potential. And, and even worse, I think, there are some of us in this room, we feel like we haven't lived up to our potential. And I know there are some of us in this room that we feel this way, right? We, we, we didn't work hard enough in certain areas of life. You look back and, and you wish, if you had it to do over again, you would have done better in school, right? You would have graduated from college. You definitely would not have been laid off from that job, that good-paying job with benefits that you lost. You, if you had it to do over again, you would have done that differently, listen, being a productive worker who works hard is essential to the image of God. It's what we were made for. You're never really even going to find peace, contentment, or happiness in life until you find something to do and be productive at it. It's it's inherent in who we are. God made us this way with this desire and this need. It's so essential that there was this guy back years ago in, in 590 A.D., his name was Gregory the Great. Now, I like this guy because my name is Gregory, so it's Gregory the Great, right? Back in 590 A.D., you might know this guy for one main reason. He's pretty famous. He was the Pope of the Catholic Church, but he's famous for finalizing the list of the seven deadly sins. And number four on the list of the seven deadly sins is this sin called sloth. You ever heard that word before? Sloth. Here's what it is. One of the seven deadly, deadly sins, sloth is laziness or the failure to do things that one should do. Things you know you should do and you don't do them. Laziness, right? Sloth, and it's a deadly sin. It's evil when people fail to work hard and do the things they should. That's how God views this. He he made us for more. We were created by God to work hard and be productive in this world. This means that work... And so if you ever wondered, what is God's will for my life, right? What is God's calling on my life? I can tell you one very clear thing. God's calling for your life is that you work hard. Work is a God-given calling. Every single one of us in this room is called into full-time ministry. Because, according to God in the scripture, ministry, right, work is ministry, This means when you go to your job, like one of the biggest problems, I think, in the Christian world is this idea that somehow ministry is what happens in church, right? And it's simply too small a view of God and his work in the world. Listen, ministry is any work done by a believer in Jesus that reflects the image of God, benefits others, and makes the world a better place. All work is ministry in this way, which means mopping floors can be ministry. Washing dishes can be ministry. Accountants, lawyers, engineers, builders, electricians, homemakers, teachers, factory workers, landscapers, secretaries, students, all of these are doing ministry. If they're believers in Jesus and their work reflects the image of God, benefits others, and makes the world a better place. This is God's work. Mopping floors can be God's work. Now I want to specifically focus in these next few minutes just on two aspects of work as ministry. I I really am hoping today to, to create a new framework in our minds, even for my own life. I can tell you preparing for this has been very meaningful for me just to get a better perspective on my life and how I spend my life. But I I really hope to create a framework for you to understand today that that this is really true, that when you're doing productive work in the world, it is God's work. So i want to focus on two aspects of, of work as ministry. The first one is true of work just in general. It's going to be true forever, even in heaven. A lot of people don't think of heaven this way, but heaven is going to be a place of productive work. You're going to love being in heaven. And you'll never be bored. You're going to have something amazing and productive to do all the time. And so what we're going to talk about, this first aspect of work as ministry is going to be true both now and forever. This will never change. The the second aspect of work as ministry is true only in this life, this short earthly life in which we live. There's a sense of urgency to it. So the first one is this. The first aspect of work as ministry is the ministry of work. In a few minutes, we're going to talk about ministry at work. But this is the ministry of work. And here's what I mean by it. The ministry of work is working to God and for God and with God for his glory. To God, for God, and with God for his glory. Basically, this means that work, what I'm trying to say right here is that work is worship. It's direct service to God. It can actually be true that mopping a floor is direct service to God, is worship to him, to God and for God and with God for his glory. So where do I get this? I get it from Colossians chapter 3. And what's interesting with Colossians chapter 3 is he starts off this passage in verse 23 quoting Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10. The very first thing he says is almost an exact quote from Ecclesiastes 9, and then he follows it up. So listen to this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Remember, that's exactly what Ecclesiastes just said. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord. Now you think, is it possible to learn to live this way? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, as working for the Lord, not for men, it's the Lord Christ you are serving. Are these just pretty words, or is this real? Can life really be this way, right? From God's perspective, this is what what I think God is saying to us, from God's perspective, all of our work is done to him and for him. When you sweep a floor, from God's perspective, it's his floor you are sweeping. He cares about how well you sweep the floor. He views it, he experiences it as his floor. It's your ministry to him and for him, and he promises to reward you for it. If you do it the right way. And So the right way, there's only one right way to work to and for and with God, and it's this. You have to do it with him for his glory. God is not all that interested in us doing things for him. He's very interested in us doing things with him. Sweep the floor with him. 1 Peter 4.11 If anyone serves, if anyone works in any way at all, right? If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God supplies. The strength God provides. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now I want you to notice the so that in that passage. It says if anyone serves they should do it with the strength God provides. So that in all things God may be praised. Only when we do things in the strength God supplies does God get the glory. And, And this is really something we as believers have to come to grips with. If you're doing things in your own strength, God does not get the glory. Who gets the glory if you're doing it in your own strength? You get the glory. God's not interested in that at all. We have to figure out what it means to work, to serve in the strength that God supplies. As I thought about this and I look at the scripture and you try to figure out what this means, I think it it basically involves two things. One is you have to have an awareness of God's presence with you. So when you go to work, be aware God is with you. That's the first thing it means to do things with God is you have to be aware he's with you. That's where it begins. But secondly, it's not only awareness of his presence with us, but it's a dependence on his spirit in us. Learning how to do things in dependence on God, trusting him in his promises, asking for his help, doing things in prayer admitting to him that in yourself you can't do anything good and you can't do anything right. You need his spirit to guide you and lead you and help you in all things. When I do a tax return for my CPA firm, from Jesus' perspective, I'm doing it to him and for him, and he wants me to do it with him in the strength he supplies for his glory. Is it possible to do a tax return to Jesus and for Jesus and with Jesus in the strength he supplies for his glory? Jesus apparently thinks it is possible, and I want to learn how. Anybody with me on this? Wouldn't this be an amazing way to live, to learn how to live this way? Huge implications for life because it means everything matters and everything can be worshipped to God if done the right way. Listen, if you're in the room today and you're a student, you go to school, let's say you're in high school or junior high or maybe even grade school or maybe you're in college, you're a student, this means that your studies and your homework and your research papers can be worship to God. They can be to him, and for him, and with him, and the strength he supplies for his glory. In order for our work to be a ministry to God himself, right? to to have the ministry of work, I think it involves basically four things, and you can write these down or take a picture of this, because I really think this is something for us to come to grips with. The ministry of work means, number one, work hard. I mean, with all your heart, right? Work hard. As to the Lord. How hard would you work if you really thought it was Jesus' floor you were sweeping? Jesus apparently thinks it really is his floor. Work hard as to the Lord for eternal reward. We'll get to that in a minute. That's an interesting thought. Be motivated by eternal reward. Work hard as to the Lord for eternal reward in the strength he supplies. If we can learn to work this way. If we can work hard... As to the Lord, for eternal reward, in the strength He supplies, our work is worship. Now, the concept of reward is one to really think about for a minute. So, let's not make a mistake. Eternal life, right, is a gift from God. You don't have to work for salvation and forgiveness of sin. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. Jesus did all the work. All you have to do is come and receive a gift if you want to be in God's family. Right, Jesus died on the cross to purchase that for us. That's eternal life is a gift. But eternal reward, on the other hand, is an inheritance, the scripture says, based on the quality of our work. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but you are going to receive an eternal reward based on the quality of your work. Isn't that an interesting thought? Now, I don't have a whole lot of time to spend on this today, but I do want to just read you a passage that will blow your mind if you've never heard it before. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just so you listen to this, and think about whether you've ever heard anybody talk about, the, the, remember how they talk about getting to the pearly gates, right, and what it's going to be like? Think if you've ever heard anybody talk like this. Each will be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And listen to this. And the fire will test the what? The quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will what? Suffer loss. Loss. But yet we'll be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Have you ever heard this before? There's going to be a moment one day where your work is going to be tested by the flame of God's holiness. Will it survive? What is the quality of your work? Is your work, has your work been worshipped to God, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Remember, the foundation is Jesus. You get in because of Jesus. Free gift. That's what you build on. But you're rewarded according to your work and the quality of your work. What we do in this world matters. The quality of our work matters and it will matter for all eternity. Listen, in our church, I know there's a lot of building contractors, right? Pastor Jeremy's a building contractor. Ken Bussell, there's a a whole bunch of you in our church who are building contractors. Listen, the the quality of your work matters. From Jesus' perspective, you're building his house. You're putting up his drywall. You're fixing his plumbing. Work hard as to the Lord for eternal reward in the strength he supplies. And the Lord will be eager to reward quality work done with him for his glory. This is the ministry of work. Work hard and make it count. The second aspect of work as ministry has an additional layer of urgency to it because it's the ministry at work. The ministry of work, this is the ministry at work, and this is what I mean by this. It means pointing those around us to Jesus before it's too late, So your ministry of work is offered to God himself. Your ministry at work is offered to the people around you. The workplace creates opportunity to interact with people and point them to Jesus. Listen, in this fallen world, our work has a sense of urgency because the people around us every day, the people we work with, the people we go to school with, they need to see Jesus in us. And they need to hear about Jesus from us. They're going to die and we're going to die. And once this life is over, there is no second chance. You are rubbing shoulders every day with people that if they were to die, you would be horrified at their fate. And you bring the hope of the gospel, the hope of eternal life with you every day to work. You are their hope in this world. We need to show people. Jesus has commissioned us. When Jesus was about to leave the earth and go to heaven, the thing he told his people to do, he told them to go and make disciples in this world. He didn't say stay at home. He didn't say get in the holy huddle at church. He said go into the world. Find these people. Share this news with them. Jesus wants us to be his representative, his agents, his ambassadors. Everywhere we go and everything we do, Colossians 3.17 puts it like this. It says, whatever you do, and this is a pretty broad statement again, right? Whatever you do, it doesn't matter what it is. You name it. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Listen, when we go to work, we are going there in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are called to represent Jesus in the workplace, which means that we need to do our work the way Jesus would do it if he were us. Think about your job for a moment. How how would Jesus do your job if he were you? Because you know he could. Jesus was a human. He lived on earth. For 18 years, he was a carpenter. Jesus could do your job and, and, and wouldn't feel like it was beneath him. How would Jesus do your job if he were you? This is what we need to learn how to do. Before people will ever listen to us as we share Jesus, they first need to see Jesus in us. We need to build some credibility with them. And to build this credibility, I think, involves competency, character, and care. Competency. It involves doing excellent work on the job. If you want to have credibility to share Jesus with people at work, do a good job. Have excellence in your work. Jesus lived his life with excellence. He expects us to do the same. Listen, excellence, honor God, and it inspires people. Do your work, do do your best in everything. Do it with maximum effort and constantly be learning and improving. The scripture says about Jesus that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And he expects the same from us. Jesus was a learner who constantly grew. He constantly improved. And we should do the same. We should be competent workers. We should be known for our excellent work. Because when people see excellence in us, they will see the excellence of Jesus. Number two, we should be people of character. People of integrity, right? We should not be hypocrites. We should be the same person no matter where we are. Character matters, right? We should stand out as different. We should avoid anger and dishonesty and laziness and crude joking and foul language and and drunkenness and sexual lust and and poor entertainment choices. These things should just not be part of our lives so that when we go into the workplace, we have integrity. We should display the character of Jesus. One of the most tragic moments of my work life, I've worked for a large public accounting firm for the last 23 years, And it's a great firm. It's one of the, every year it's ranked as one of the top 100 places to work for in the country. And one of the reasons is is we have a a, a statement of principles that we really live by. And one of the principles is the principle of ethics. Where it basically says that we want to live by the highest of ethical standards. And we really do promote that and try to live by it. But every now and then, somebody squeezes in who doesn't fit, you know. And uh, one of the worst moments, I think, in all my work life was... uh, there was this guy, he was really an a up-and-coming star in the firm, he was on the fast track to become a partner, and one day he decided he wanted to take some of the younger staff people out for a bowling night. And so he takes these staff people out to this bowling night, and, and while he's there, he has one too many you know, drinks, and he starts to get a little bit tipsy and starts to lose some of his in- inhibitions, and, and gets a little bit too friendly with one of the young female staff members. And one thing leads to another. They end up out in his car and have a little bit of an escapade, if you know what I mean. This is all over with, and he gets home, and he's still a little bit tipsy from the drinking and decides it would be a good idea to leave a voicemail for this young staff person on her voicemail, thanking her for the favors that she did for him that night in very graphic terms. Now, here's the problem. He still wasn't in his right mind from the alcohol. He pushed the wrong button on that phone. That message went to the entire firm. Everybody in the whole firm got the message. And it was graphic and mentioned both of their names. (laughs) Listen, character matters. Character points people to Jesus or turns them away from him, depending on what kind of character you're talking about. We need to be people who, who rise above and reflect Jesus in the workplace. We need to be people of competence. We need to be people of character. We need to be people of care, showing genuine love and compassion to other people. I think there's nothing more important than this, right? Christians should be known for their love above everything else. Don't you agree? Isn't this true? Like, this is what we should be known for. We should be known as people who make sacrifices for the sake of others who put the needs of other people ahead of ourselves. 1 John 4:12 says, "No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us." Listen, we are the ones who make the invisible God visible to people. They need to see his love in us. This is what we're called to be. The ministry of work and ministry at work. Listen friends, life is short. Work hard and make it count. Amen. Listen, this is what Solomon's driving at in chapters 9 and 10 of Ecclesiastes. This is the major theme. You get limited number of days on this earth. Even in your work or better yet, especially in your work. Make them count. I want to close with a two-minute video. I realize it's getting late. It's two minutes long. You're going to realize after you watch this video, you're going to say, why didn't he just play that and let us go home a long time ago? Because here's what's going to happen. In the next two minutes, you're going to see a video that summarizes everything I've just said. But it's an amazing little video. Check this out, and we'll pray and get out of here, okay?
0: Work. Most of us spend over half our lives at work. Whatever it is you fill the 9 to 5 with, planting crops, building cars, taking care of patients, teaching students, or running a business, work is where most of life happens. For some, work is a drain. They dread Monday mornings, forcing themselves to struggle through because they need the paycheck, while many times feeling trapped and beaten down by their job. Some people love their work. They're good at what they do. It energizes them. It's a place of security, a place to chase dreams, desires, and success. At work, they find fulfillment. We often forget to connect our faith to our work. We don't consider the reasons God may have us at our job. We don't think about the purpose and meaning we could bring to our work. We simply focus on how it makes us feel. But what if we saw our work as an opportunity to worship? As Christians, we are called to serve Christ with our lives. For a few, that means working as a pastor, a youth minister, or a missionary. Others serve the church by teaching children or singing in the choir. But when Sunday is over, most of us return to our jobs outside the church. For us, our mission is in the marketplace. We may not be the kind of missionary who moves to the far regions of Africa, but around the conference table, around the water cooler, or around the cubicle, we have an opportunity to worship the God who created us. He gave us skill. He gave us passion. He gave us work. When we do our jobs with excellence and integrity and diligence, it's an act of worship. We are displaying God's craftsmanship to the non-believing world around us. We are earning the right to be heard. We don't see a divide between Sunday and Monday, between the sacred and the secular. We've been invited into parts of the world that a pastor or traditional missionary will never see. We have conversations with people who would never set foot in a church. Whether we love or dread our work, we choose to turn the focus away from ourselves and toward the mission God has for us. Church is not the only place we worship, and Sundays are not the only days in our calendars that have meaning. Every day on Mission for God brings us great joy. Like the heroes before us, we can be modern-day Noahs and Josephs and Peters who are called with a purpose. God has designed us. He created us to work and to worship. For us, work is is worship.
2: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for making us in your image. Thank you for being a productive worker and creating us to be productive workers. Thank you for giving us meaningful things to do. Father, I pray that whatever we do, we would work at it with all our hearts as working for you and to you and with you, in the strength that you supply, so that you will get the glory, and the people around us will see your love. God, use us in this world. Life is short. Help us to work hard and make it count. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.